My name is Harrison Wheeler, and this is the Technically Speaking Podcast. I sit down with BIPOC designers, entrepreneurs, and technologists. We discuss careers, triumphs, and their resilience, and the why behind their decisions. Before we get started with the show, I just wanted to plug our Patreon. If you like what you're listening to and you want to support the podcast, for as low as $3, you can contribute monthly to help support the production of the show. You can contribute today by heading over to patreon.com slash technically speaking HW. I'll also include the link in the show notes. My guest today is Christy Tillman, design extraordinaire and director of design at Netflix. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Harrison. How are things going for you? How's the morning treating you? It's super busy. So we're in the middle of Q3, Q4 planning, but it's also review time, yeah. clock planning time. So lots of moving parts going on. So pretty busy, but I'm glad to be here talking to you. The nice little yeah. dip in my normal routine. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I feel that it is that time of the year for at least in our world, like annual reviews and folks getting back from vacation. vacation. Fortunately, you've got some vacation plans, so that's good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But can't wait to really touch on some of the things that, you know, you do as a director, because I know listeners are always curious about that. We always have guests from a number of different fields and different parts of their career. So it's always great to see what's it like a little bit further up the ladder, if you will. We'll touch on that. But before, we'll do some icebreakers okay. to get the conversation started. And one thing that I always like to start out with the guests, I always like to ask them, what is something that you're currently obsessed with? Oh, that's a good question. I think right now I'm obsessed with organizational design. I just started a new role at Netflix where I have my scope of my remit has gotten a lot larger. I've taken over a larger organization and I've been thinking a lot about how we do our work. And this is my first time leading an organization of this size. And so I've been reading a lot of books on organizational design. And then there's also Peter Mehl's blog about organizational design. So I've been like moving chess pieces in my head for the last yeah. few weeks and thinking about how we do our work. So from yeah. a work perspective, that's like top of mind for me. And then I think in a personal perspective, I've been obsessed with like Web3. I've been really digging in and spending a lot of time in Web3 community. They're learning about NFTs and yeah. DeFi and stuff like that. And so I have spent an extraordinary amount of time learning about those things and trying to understand what design's role might be in shaping that space. Yeah. Is that space going to even persist beyond the space that we're in now and was really understanding the player and how it all works? So, yeah. Those have been my kind of two obsessions lately. Yeah. I, got, I have two questions from okay. that. So, first one, how big is your organization? It's a mid-double digit number. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Is that the scope? How do you perceive that? Was that like a, oh my gosh, I'm so excited? Is it like, ooh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Take me through like your thinking there. So it made me nervous initially because I started Netflix in January. And so I had not been at Netflix very long before my boss approached me and said, hey, I think this thing is going to happen and yeah. think about what this new role might be if you'd consider it. And he gave me a couple of options about whether I want to take it. And then if I did, like when 
And so we had some of those discussions and in the end, I was pretty excited. Honestly, I just really like working at Netflix. <laughs> Hopefully this is like a Netflix plug, but I really like working at Netflix and I love the people that I yeah. work with. So I was excited that I get the opportunity to learn. And Steve, in particular, my boss is really really good yeah. and so i feel like i'm in a really good place where i've been set up for a lot of success to run this organization so i felt oh. nervous about it but then very i felt oh i can it will be a challenge but i can obviously do this um, yeah. and i had the confidence of some other folks as we were thinking about talking through the planning and it's a it's i'm learning my, my like i'm on all soldiers in terms of learning yeah. the thing that you'll figure out in your career as you go through is each company or each experience just has its own scope. So if you look at my LinkedIn, you'll see director, but all of my director experiences have been quite different in terms of scope, mm. possibility. So I think less about title and more about what I'm going to learn. Mm. And so for me at this point in my career, so I went to business school before I went to design school. So if you listen yeah. to any other podcasts that I've done, you hear me talking about that. And so it was funny because I hated business and that's the reason I dropped out. I'm now that I'm a grown adult, I'm not like, Man, I really wanted a more business-centric role. And mm. so one of the things that I get to do at Netflix, like I'm really, I think my role is more of a GM than sure. it is of a like product design or even like design director in the classic sense. For example, mm. at Slack, my design director role is very much in the craft of it, right? Like I rolled up my sleeves, I was doing crits, yeah. I was literally directing the designers. And at Netflix, my role is completely different. It's much more of a mm. business strategy, product perspective yeah. role. Where I think more about how do we run this organization and less about the fundamentals of design. And to yeah. me, that's a really interesting place to be in my career. Because yeah. honestly, I think that I think about my, I'm always thinking about my next move regardless. So I think in my next role, I really want to design. And so I feel like this role is setting me up to be able to do that. Because I'll be able to mm. tell a really strong story about operations, running yeah. a, a significant budget, running a significant size team with multi-layers. Yeah. And I can talk to that and how we impacted the business versus, oh, here's my portfolio of nice buttons. And so it just has different implications. So I'm excited about it. Yeah, I love that. We're thinking about design from a business perspective, which isn't, I will say that there's not really too much out there that really speaks to that. But it also shows the evolution of the role from a business sense where people can understand the impact ultimately in an organization. I think I also love to hear that you're supported as well to be on that learning journey by by your peers and obviously by the leaders in the organization. The second question I was going to ask a part of sort of the obsession piece is, and you're going to listen to this later and you're going to be like, what was I talking about? How would you define Web3 in on August of 2022? <laughs> Okay, so funny enough, I've never listened to my podcast, so I will never listen to this podcast. I've okay. never listened to any podcast I've done. So I, honestly, when I do them, I don't know. After I say it, it's out in the air. How would I describe what three is? Wild West is an amalgamation of a lot of different things. So they're like all coin. They're like the more stable coins. That you know, mm -hmm. BTC, Bitcoin, Bitcoin isn't technically part of Web3, but then there's Ethereum and Solana, right? And then you have NFTs. And then you yeah. have this metaverse thing. So I think Web3 is really just a marketing term for this evolution in technology yeah. that's happening. But it's a bunch of different stuff. And so yeah. I think one of the things about participating in it is that you start to be able to peel back the layers from the either the marketing perspective or the anti-Web3 perspective, which tends to lump a 
bunch of different stuff together. Like even That's NFTs right. have a mini variety. Like they're collectibles. There are like social passes. There are links to merchandise, right? There are so many different things happening in this space that is not just all one thing. And so I think there's probably something for everybody. So the downsides are, I feel like there's a ton of, there's too much scamming. Like you can't feel like you have to really have an eagle eye to be able to understand what's real and what's not. And because it kind of lives on the decentralized principle, right? Like the custody of your high valued assets, whether they're coins that are worth something or NFTs that are worth something are up to you. And so that presents mm. a lot of problems that makes you very hackable when people know yeah. that you like are in possession of these things. And because it's on the blockchain, everyone can see what's in your wallets, right? There's a lot of room for design to come in and help clean up yeah. uh, from a UX perspective, from a safety perspective. Obviously, there needs to be some security stuff happening yeah. in there as well. But I just think it's interesting for me and from a design perspective, there's like the product design perspective of like, how do we make wallets more secure? How do we make minting more secure? How do we make the experience much more? Because it really hack it. Like even buy an NFT, you got to go to this exchange, oh, yeah. get these coins, move to your wallet. Then yeah, exactly. So like, how do we make that user experience better? And then I think there are interesting brand things that are happening too, like the visual languages that are developing around some of the projects and communities and the ability to explore. And what does it mean to redefine visual language for a company? Like mm. what, in, like in your brand was like, what memes might you own? What memes might be germane mm. to your brand? So yeah. starting to ask those questions, like what does a Web3 brand book look like? I think there's just so much territory there. Yeah, Curious people will just have a really good time asking yeah. themselves those questions. And then if you want to dive into it, then you, there's plenty of opportunity to go in and start to create best practices. Yeah. Exciting times. Yeah, I think so too. I think the jury's still out on use cases and sure. the ability to go mainstream and maybe it's based yeah. something niche. I don't know, yeah. but I'm just like in it for the experiments. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next question. What is currently on your playlist? Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I have a lot to talk about here. I have a playlist called Country Bops. that has a Conway Twitty, Loretta Lynn. I've been listening to that a lot lately. I've been yeah. listening to Beyonce's new album Renaissance. I think Cuff It is probably my favorite song on there. Meg Thee Stallion just dropped a new album, Trauma Zane, that I've been listening to. Yeah. And then Kendrick Lamar. And I was publicly hating on Kendrick's new album when it first came out. And then I watched the Louis Vuitton men's show mm. that he did with my alma mater's marching band. And I don't know, like, I, maybe the nostalgia of being in college, but that, like, yeah. totally turned me around on his album. And I've been listening to it ever since. And even listening to that specific song, soundtrack from that show it's just really good and it, i don't you chose to totally watch it kendrick is like really sitting down rapping a fashion yeah. show i don't know if you uh. saw it but it's really good and then the other one i'm listening to a lot still is tyler the creator yeah. which is one of my favorite artists listening to call like me when you get lost. which album call me when you get lost mm. i'm wearing that one out i love it yeah <laughs> Yeah. How did you get the name for the playlist? You call it Country Bops? Yeah, I love, I don't know. I like naming playlists. So I just have, like, I have like Ignorant Square, Country Bops, Driving Down the Highway, Songs About Atlanta. I don't know. I like naming yeah. playlists. So all my playlists have interesting names. Yeah. I also love how when you can attach a song to, or music to visuals, it can change the experience. It really completely. can. It really yeah. can. It really yeah. does. 
Yeah. And what's your alma mater? Florida A&M University. Okay. All right. So the marching band, so it's a historically black college, right? Yes. Yeah. Not the marching 100. Yeah. They played at the Louis Vuitton's men's fashion show that just went. Um, yeah. Exactly. The performance is amazing. Yeah. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. Okay. All right. What one one last? This is this might be controversial. Okay. So, what is something problematic about the design industry that is worth turning around? Oh man, what's worth turning around? Do you mean like worth addressing? Yeah, and changing. Yes. Okay, there are two things. <laughs> yeah. The obvious one is I still think the design industry does not do a good job of reflecting the people that we make things for and that there's still this codified class of people that like are too distant from the rest of the global population to be making things in private companies. So I still think that's a huge problem. Yeah. I don't even want to say the D word because I'm tired of it, but you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And so to me, it's not just about, oh, let's diversify for the sake of like having more black yeah. people, more queer people. It's just, it's not for the sake of representation. It's really okay. about making products better. And, and then there's, and then there's this huge gap of products that should exist that don't, mm. that don't get made just because the mind share and the capital don't go to the people that could make them. So that's still a problem that's worth addressing and turning around. I think the other big problem, and we touched on a little bit earlier, is I think that product design is stuck in how to operate within a business. We still Mm. don't fundamentally understand how to build relationships, how to make impact. Mm. We're still having that, do we have a seat at the the table (laughs) question, right? That same stale conversation has not progressed. In plus years gone. Exactly. We're still having that yeah. same style conversation. And designers are still not being prepared educationally to yeah. be business people that build software within right. companies. And so I think that's something we need to like as an industry contend with. What are the implications? We yeah. still instill in people almost ethos that are completely contrary to business. Right. Like we're still we're like we're in businesses fighting to do the opposite thing of the business. <laughs> Just because yeah. we feel like we have this this perspective on product design. And I think we need other industry need to reckon with that. And yeah deflate the bubble and just come to some hard conclusions about what it means to be a capitalist tool yeah. in business and give up the art fight of product yeah. design. And I know that's controversial, but... No. It's <laughs> real talk. No, it's real talk, right? Yeah. I think a lot, I will say this, I think a lot of perspectives that I have seen get coded in being user-centered and being the hero for the people when mm-hmm. you're working for a business that Ultimately, just trying to drive money and that revenue is tied to your pay. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good example. They're really, so now that we want to put out crappy software, that's not what we're saying. But yeah. I do think that designers need to contend with what's good enough. Like mm. we, we will say, yeah. oh, we should be bringing the best idea. And mm. the business is asking for the most efficient idea that works. And there's okay. a delta between those two things. And I think mm. that's where the reckoning happens about mm. what our job actually is, right? So- yeah. I think designers are still having that fruitless fight. We're not going to win it. Give it up. (laughs) Uh, Let's move on. Let's put, I really feel like I don't want to be having that conversation in 10 years. Yeah. No, I'm with you. All right. So 
that, those are some amazing icebreakers. And I love that last question because that could be like a whole series in itself. But <laughs> maybe let's get to let the listeners know a little bit about. So Chrissy, now let's tell the listeners a little bit about your journey in design and how that started and where you're at now. Cool. So uh, my journey to design is long and windy. So I'll skip like the other part and just say I went through a lot of education institutions and decided that none of it was for me. And then I ended up going to design school and then interning at some great places and really getting a lot of experience in design school. One of the good things about going to design school a little bit later than most like 18 year olds is that you really know why you're there. So you can really like buckle down and, and focus and be in the studio. So I was able to get some yeah. great internships and leave with the, at that time, this was back when you built a portfolio in one of those big black totes and you like would put on white gloves yeah. and pull your stuff big, out. Big thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even the digital broadcast you made were yeah. like printouts that you mounted. Printed out. Yeah. Print out the poster board. <laughs> yes, it mounted. So I was able to leave school with one of those portfolios. It was around the recession of 2008. Yeah. Got, even my last internship got canceled. And then I kind of went through a journey through the footwear industry because I did most of my internships at design school in the footwear industry. So I naturally had connection there. And then I left the footwear industry and then spent time at IDEO. And that was a really pivotal point for me at that time. IDEO was the place to be. And it's where I got really exposed to the process of design and design's ability to affect and impact business and industry. When you work at a consultancy, you get to see problems at all sorts of altitudes. And then you also get to work with so many different clients that you get to see design happen really fast. And that was really good for me. So I always, when young people ask me, should I go to a consultancy or agency or should I go in-house? I almost feel like designers at some point should definitely get the agency consultancy experience, especially when you're new. Yeah. Because what happens is you get to see a bunch of different problems versus solving one company's problem. So that was really good for me. And I ended up working on a venture design project at IDEO called Society of Grownups, where Mass Mutual said, hey, we sell life-term policy that millennials aren't buying our insurance. What can we do? And so we spent three years working on this project, ended up being a business that spun out of IDEO. And I actually went to work on the business at IDEO. Then I loved IDEO to work on the business once it spun out. Built a design and brand, built a product, excuse me, product and brand team there, continued that work. And then that kind of firmly put me into the tech space from strictly design to tech. And so that was really interesting. I started working with engineering closely. And that was really good for me too, because the downside to working in a consultancy like IDEO is you work on a lot of blue sky initiatives, a lot of zero to one initiatives, and you don't ship a lot of things. And there's a lot that said about shipping things and understanding yeah. data on the back end and that. And so I was like, I really want to see something through. So that's when I lost. Yeah. And then Twitter, like Twitter was always a big part of my life. And I think it was Dio that I met on Twitter. He was at Slack at the time and we were just chit chatting on Twitter mm. kind of like regularly. And he reached out to me and he was like, Hey, I'm at Slack. I'd love to talk to you about it. And he and I chit chatted. And then the story was a little bit of wild now. He and I chit chatted. And then I met someone else and I could design slides. Oh, yeah. I met my, my then soon to be boss in a design, like one of the design slides. Yeah. And he was like, Hey, I'm going to Slack. Like, so and so told me they've been talking to you. When I get there, let me see what it looks like. And then I'll reach out to you. And see how yeah. the open roles. And so I think I spent a year and a half talking to the guy that's last. Like a couple wow. of roles came up. They weren't the right fit for me. Yeah. And then one day a role opened up and they're like, hey, I think this is perfect for you. 
Mm. Um, it was a grand role. It was building the first grade design team at Slack. Joshua called me like, hey, I got this role. We're going to be hiring a director of communication design. Do you want to do this? I was like, hell yeah. I think I, I I think it was like a week between the time he called me and the time I flew out to San Francisco and interviewed. Wow. It was very quick because I was like getting my portfolio, scrambling to get my portfolio together. So lesson is always be ready. <laughs> I was going to say, what's the difference between a role that comes your way where you're like, maybe, and like the hell yeah. Yeah. So for me on that one, so I was really, so I had, when I was working firmly in design, I spent a lot of time on tech Twitter mm. and there was a lot of things that I didn't like about technology culture. And so yeah. I was very hesitant about going to a strict tech company, especially okay. a Silicon Valley tech company, because- yeah. I don't like, I don't know like what the age range of your listeners are, but the 2008 to 2010 tech Twitter is like legendary. Like it was like the age of email startups and YC was like the king, yeah. right? I was spot leading and it was like, everyone move out to Silicon Valley, you get rich. Like it was just a whole scene, right? Like it was yeah. booming. The engine was booming and startup culture really came into mainstream to regular people on Twitter at that time because most people didn't have access or a view into that culture, right, before it right. became mainstream on social media. So that was a really interesting time. And it was like, I was like, man, do I want to like move to Silicon Valley and like go to some company where they like have dogs roaming around and they're playing ping pong all day? It just it didn't. So I was really hesitant about that. I was in Boston, right, I was on the East Coast. And so yeah. I was like, Okay, I was like, I have to, if I'm going to go out there, it has to be for the role that like really moves mm -hmm. me, right? And so yeah. it had to be very obvious. And I had other opportunities. It was funny because I was thinking about it this morning. I dodged a bunch of like bullets. Like I had got other offers. Because at that time, a lot of people were leaving IDEO for startups and they were like bringing yeah. alumni along. There was always Clean. this like holes of opportunities that I could have taken that would have diverted yeah. my career any other way. I think I've done a good job and I, I don't even credit myself for this. I honestly just think it's pure luck of knowing which opportunities to take and which ones not to take. Cool. Mm. But yeah, so I went out to San Francisco. I interviewed. It was amazing. I was like, wow, this is okay. I was like, this is cool. Once I got there, I felt a lot better. Interviewed. Yeah. And then I think a couple of days later, they called me and told me I got the role. And then it was like, okay, now I got to pack up and leave Boston. And I was so nervous. I actually, so don't tell them this, but I left Boston because I drove from Boston to San Francisco. Wow. Never do that. Wow. You make the company ship your car. <laughs> I was regretting it by like day one. Day like by hour 27, I was like, and you were only in Tennessee or something. Right. Exactly. And so I was supposed to leave much earlier, but I was so nervous. I left three days before my orientation. So I literally wow. pulled into my hotel at three days. I literally pulled into my hotel like 11 p.m. and my orientation was like at nine the next morning. So never do that. <laughs> it was a large changing event to me. Spike is just such a special company. At that yeah. time, it was the darling in Silicon Valley and all cylinders were firing. And it was just like us against the world and hyper growth. And we were just hiring like crazy. And it was such an energetic time and such a career transforming time. I just learned so much. Learned also had some good, hard, lesser than head bumps too. Yeah. So learned a lot and it was life-changing moment there. So that was what got me out of San Francisco. And then from there, I was just like, oh, okay, just a series of job changes. Most recently when Steve called me, I was like, hey, 
have a show on Netflix. It's a mix and you have an enterprise experience. Yeah, marketing experience. I think this will be good for you. And so I was like, mm. okay. I had created Made in the Future fellowship yeah. for underrepresented designers. And Steve was one of the speakers. So I got a chance to meet him at that event and make that connection. And then so he called me a few months later. I was like, hey, I have this role. You want to take it? I was like, yeah. I was not sure because at the time I was at Facebook and I had a director role there, but I wasn't a people manager just like the best of both worlds where you can lead a, 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 an initiative, but you don't have to manage people. So I was really hesitant about going back in and being a people manager. But the recruiting process at Netflix was so good. Steve was like, hey, talk to different, talk to all the people you want to talk to. And then you tell me like, do you want to form a little for this role? And so yeah. I spent a couple like weeks, like maybe it's like six to eight weeks just talking to different people about the role, yeah. about the Netflix culture. And then I formally interviewed. So there's a theme there that now I'm thinking of, that I'm now that I'm recounting the story that like the best jobs I've had are ones that where I took my time and like yeah. really spent time, like really being considered about it. Because which yeah. slides, I was like, I could have jumped on roles much earlier. I just don't sure. think they would have been the best for me, but I waited until that right role came around. It was similar thing with Netflix. I spent a lot yeah. of time like being considered about whether I was going to take that role. And like, right. I really enjoy working at the company. So, yeah. Yeah. I think one, another thing too, like you talked about being prepared for these types of roles. And I think some, sometimes people get caught up in maybe some of the slower parts of their career where things might be a little bit uneventful, but all of this has happened, what, in the last six years or so, right? Yeah, I, mean, I started that's, Slack in 2016. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that transformation can happen pretty fast. I think specifically, you said like that opportunity at Slack was a big moment for you, working in such a fast-paced company with really great energy and then also with the opportunity for you to extend yourself a bit more and that's led to some more amazing opportunities. Correct. So I want to, I, like one thing I want to touch on, I have one more question after this, but one more thing I want to touch on is some of the side projects that you've worked on. Obviously you've got an amazing sort of career and I'd love to know, like you've worked on like the Detroit Water Project. You've also mm -hmm. worked on the MIT Fellowship and high level, you don't have to tell us like about the projects, but high level, like why do you, when you're working on personal projects, why do you give back? And then also what are some of the things that you've learned from it and that have maybe are guiding you toward maybe something a little bit later on? Yeah. So I'm, I feel like side projects are another avenue to create opportunity. Like I, I, none of this is planned. No one sits down and says, I'm going to do this. And, this, and it happens exactly that way. Yeah, yeah. But I think what you can do is you can create a, you can expand your surface area of opportunity. So I think your imagination is this big, but the opportunity space of things that could happen to you is this big. So mm -hmm. you can't even imagine all the possibilities. Like you cannot literally plan out all the good things that could happen to you. But what you can do is you can increase your surface area and make yourself available to different people just via connections, via giving back. And you just never know who's going to come into your life, how it's going to materialize, what it's going to what what's going to happen because of it. So I don't do yeah. side products just like to get things. That's not yeah. the case. But what they do, they just enrich your life and give you another avenue to explore. Mm -hmm. And then the thing is, you get to control them, right? You get to do exactly what you want to do versus right. the, the things that you work on at work. And so one of the, one of the hard-worn lessons that I've learned in my career is that you do not own the stuff you do at work. It is not right. your stuff, belongs to the company, and there has to be some level of personal detachment from it because people get too wrapped up in the identity of where they work or mm -hmm. what their career 
employer says they should be doing and then maybe they're not on track or whatever, right? And all that stuff is just hot air. Well, you can do with your side project, you can do exactly what you want to do. You can invite yeah. who you want into your side project. Hey, do you want to meet that person? Do you want to work mm. with that person? And make an opportunity for yourself to meet that person. Like right. maybe in the future, it was like, okay, I, I knew I wanted to do that project. It had been bubbling in my head for five years before I did it. I finally got the opportunity to do it. And there's something you said about timing too, which we could talk about in a whole other podcast, but sometimes ideas just have to rust and then like the yeah. timing of them just work themselves out. So it was like, okay, I'm going to do this. How do I create opportunity for other people to feel like they're giving back? Who are some people I want to meet through this? Who are some people that I want to make connection with? Yeah. And let me invite those people into my fold and give them the opportunity to give back. And what might come of that? So I met my new boss through that. Yeah. I met another mentor through that who helped me negotiate my offer. <laughs> I have yeah. a couple of friends that I talk with probably a couple of times a week. Yeah. We're like pen pals now in group chats. Yeah. It's like, you just never know. So I think you have to give yourself an opportunity to have as many connections with people as possible if you want to have an interesting story, yeah. a colorful story. And then if you want to bust into spaces that maybe are good for you, but you just couldn't have imagined that an opportunity just availed itself. So you can't yeah. do that just like being a soul lower designer in a corner, never talking to anyone, never giving yeah. back to anyone, never making connections. People always say, how do you network? I think one of the easiest ways to network is to give other people opportunities. Mm -hmm. People want to be helped and people yeah. want to see that you're investable and coachable. So making opportunities for other people to do things, the great way to b break into other networks. So I mean, that's one of my hacks. You want yeah. there's someone you want to meet on Twitter you follow them on Twitter. Man, I really, I want to know this person. Reach out to them and make yourself useful. And I love how that kind of brought the Netflix journey full circle as well. So I'm going to ask you this. So as leading organizations, this is a multi-pronged question. So. You can either answer each thing or it can be thematic, okay. but I guess what would be some advice that you give for emerging designers, someone mid-career, and then someone at a senior level? So we'd been discussing some of the concepts around business and working in an mm -hmm. organization. So I think for mid-career people, I think that's a really interesting point. I actually consider myself mid-career, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I would be classified as a senior leader just based on my proximity yeah. uh, title to the CEO and to my VP. Yeah. And maybe it's one of those things where you're like upper class where you still see yourself as middle class. So I'm totally open to saying, being saying that I'm wrong about that. I think make careers interesting because I think you're at an inflection point about like what you want to do. And there's just so many possibilities. So I would yeah. say a mid-career, like just be, I think one of the important things that I talk about this on my Twitter a lot, especially for mid-career people, is not, and this is going to be a really like privileged sounding take, but I grew up working class too. So I'm just, I don't want to caveat with that. And this is not to say you should be poor, but I would not optimize for short-term money at the mm. mid-career level. I'm not saying don't get paid, but... Don't make pay like the ultimate variable that you make all your decisions around. Mm -hmm. And in some places, there may be opportunities that suit themselves where the pay is just okay and you sacrifice making 
$50 more to get further. So when right. I actually went to back to design school, I did that because I d- delayed my pay to go to school again. And then, like I told you earlier, I passed up a lot of other opportunities that came my way from like my audio alum network, even talking to Slack much earlier. I, I was like, no, I'm not taking these roles. And I could have been making a lot more money. Yeah. And I didn't because it just weren't the right roles. And I th- I feel like I'm probably caught up now yeah. to where I should be or even have exceeded probably most of my peers. Sure. Uh, according to my mentor, I've exceeded <laughs> most of my peers. <laughs> and so I think really optimizing for what you want to do, what you want to learn, who you want to work with. I think yeah. another thing is like at companies, you're working next to your future boss or maybe your future co-founder. There are a lot of opportunities at a company that evolve beyond just like being there working and going up their ladder. It's yeah. about the people you work with. So I would optimize for learning, optimize for network and yeah. increasing your surface area mid-career. And also too, I think location. One of the things I recently left San Francisco in November, and I'm trying to decide that was a mistake or not. I'm really reflecting on it. One of the interesting things about San Francisco in particular, and this applies to the East Coast as well, but if you're in tech, it, it will resonate with you, is the surface area for opportunity in San Francisco is just so dense. And it's just yeah. so hard to replicate that anywhere else. And so when you are in that space where you can de- dedicate a lot of time to your career and thinking about what you want to do, I think like being somewhere where there's just lots of physical opportunity is important. I know right. we've been talking a lot about like people leaving the Bay and turning other cities into little tech calls that nothing wrong with yeah. the Bay. It just yeah. doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Can't move to Iowa trying to be a star in Hollywood. Exactly. Totally. When I had my hesitation about moving from the East Coast to the yeah. Bay, I'm glad I finally got over that because I think that would have held me back if I had stayed, particularly in Boston, yeah. and not moved to San Francisco. It really optimizing for who you want to be in 10 to 15 years. So yeah. I'll say that for middle career people. For senior people, I think so. I think for senior people, it's probably about not getting too senior. So I was on a Twitter space a couple of weeks ago with Ivy, who runs like different spaces about different parts of technology roles. And she asked me, like, how do people break in who are junior? Like, how do you break into product design? I didn't have a really great answer to her. I was like, my answer to her was like, I am so far from that part of the journey that I can't even tell you. And I haven't hired anybody in a year and a half. So I'm not even sure what the resumes are looking like these days because I haven't had to look at portfolios or resumes of folks. And when I do, they're going to be senior people. They're not going to be junior people anyways. And I was like, damn, I I thought about it afterwards. I'm so far removed from what it means to be like a first year or second year, third year person trying to get into product design and build a career. And I don't even even know how people are breaking in beyond like special programs anymore. So I was like, man, I'm like, maybe I'm getting too senior. Like I'm getting too far away from the experience of people who are coming into this field. And so I really had to reflect on that. But I got to figure out what I'm going to do about it. I don't know yet, but it was a reflection point for me about like how easy it is to lose touch. Yeah, It can happen very quickly. So when you acquire money, power, status of any kind, it can quickly change your perspective. And I think that's something that we have to have a lot of self-awareness about, yeah. internal checks and balances about. So maybe that's my advice for senior people. Don't get too senior. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. Christy, thank you so much. This is an amazing, wide-ranging conversation. It was great to 
learn a, a bit more about you and your thought process around the work that you do as well. How can listeners find you on the internet? They can find me at Christy T on Twitter. That's probably the best place. I don't, other than LinkedIn, I don't really do other social media. Facebook yeah. is for my family only. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I should have said the World Wide Web. Yes. You can find me at Christy T on Twitter. I tweet a lot. So yeah. that's where you Let's go find my voice. Awesome. Thank you for having well, me. I yeah. this conversation. That concludes the show. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That is a huge way to show your support, and it really helps us reach more people and grow our following. By the way, we release a new episode every two weeks, but in the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, or YouTube at Technically Speaking HW. Again, thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. This has been a production of Technically Speaking Media.